Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. Well, welcome back to the Servants of Grace podcast. My name is Dave and I'm the host for this show. And on today's episode, we're going to continue our series through the book of Psalms, looking today at Psalm 41 and the blessing of Christ. Would you please join me now in prayer? Heavenly Father, as we come now before your word, we gather around it to learn more about what you would have to say to us us poor needy sinners who are in such need of the righteousness of god that you sent forth christ the son to pay the penalty for those who would believe repent and believe and put their hope and trust in christ and so lord as we come around your word now father i pray that we would know we would know through our study of this text that we are poor that we have a great need of you and that you are enough and that you always will be because you said in john 19 30 it is finished so lord as we come now to look at this passage i i pray that you would open eyes and open ears to hear what you have to say to us through our time together in psalm 41 and that you would illuminate this text to our hearts and to our minds and that you would help us to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our lord and savior jesus christ that you would open the eyes and the ears and the hearts of those who have not yet heard Christ and that they might know that Christ has come, that Christ can save, and that Christ is enough and that he is soon returning to judge the living and the dead. And so we thank you, Lord, as we now open psalm 41 for your word it is living it is active and we pray that your holy spirit would use it to help us to convict us where we need conviction and bring comfort where uh, there's comfort needed that that you would do the work by your word and that you would carry forth the word of the living god by your spirit into the life of those who hear in jesus name amen and amen well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Psalm 41. Psalm 41 says this. Blessed is the one who considers the poor in the day of trouble. The Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on a sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. As for me, I said... O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words, while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, you ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me, and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me. But you have upheld me because of my integrity, and set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen. And amen. This is the reading of God's precious word. May he bless the preaching of it. And may he bless the hearing of his word. 
our commitment today to protect the weak and help the childless is not a new thing for Christians. In the early centuries of the church, Roman culture practiced infanticide. If a father did not want a child, he literally had the right to throw it away like throwing away something in the garbage. And what Christians did is they rescued newborn babies from garbage piles where they were left to die from scavengers or exposure. Christians have always been known for their compassion. This is why we started hospitals, we started orphanages, we even started universities. At every point in the history of our world, even we, we started counseling people with the word of God. At every point in the history of our world, Christians have been at the forefront of care and compassion. When missionaries travel to the undeveloped parts of the world, they start hospitals. Maynard and Dorothy Seaman built a hospital in, uh, for example, in remote western Nepal, the only medical facility in the entire region. And when they left Nepal after 25 years of ministry, they were serving over 3,000 patients for leprosy and another 15,000 for tuberculosis. An open heart towards the weak and the poor is a quality that defines the people of God and it brings the blessing of God. David opens this psalm with a beatitude saying, Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In Psalm 41, this blessing is the foundation for David's hope. And perhaps, evidently, David was very sick and his enemies took this opportunity to plot against him. David's hope was that God would remember his care for the needy and that he would bless him. Now, Psalm 41 is the last psalm in book one of the Psalms. Numbers, book one began in Psalm 1, and it ends here with this psalm. The whole book of Psalms is organized, if you remember, as we talked about at the opening of this series, in five smaller books. And now we come to the end of book one. Significantly, Psalm 41 begins with the important Hebrew word, blessed. And this stands out because book one began with the blessing too. Psalm 1 once says, Blessed in, in the, is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. And Psalm 2, 12 ends with the same word. Speaking of our response to Christ, the psalmist says, Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Psalms 1 and 2 are tied together by this word blessed as they introduce Christ. And now when we see this word blessed again at the end of the book in Psalm 41.1, we should think back to Psalm 1 and 2 and think about everything that we have read over the last 40 psalms that we've considered in this series so far. Book 1 ends in the same place it began so that in a real sense, the whole of book 1 is the story of this blessed man, Jesus Christ. In Psalm 1, he is the ideal man who never sinned. In Psalm 2, he is, the blessed, uh, he is the blessed king whom God set on a throne. And by the time we get to Psalm 41, we know that the Messiah is a vulnerable man whose enemies hate him and attack him. And the hostility and the suffering he experienced is not a sign that God is displeased with him. In spite of his suffering or because of his suffering, he is blessed. And this was a reality that the Jews in Jesus' day would not accept. They thought the Messiah would come in triumph and victory. And so the idea of a Messiah who suffered, who was rejected and crucified, was a stumbling block for them to use Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 1.23. But this is exactly the kind of Messiah the book one of Psalms expects us and to look forward to and to know. And so we can organize our time together in Psalm 41 in three sections. David starts by declaring his confidence that God will rescue him because of his care for the poor in verses 1 through 3. And then he confesses his sin to God and asks for healing in verses 4 through 10. 
And finally, he experiences God's answer in verses 10 through 12. And in all of this, David is a prophet who is writing ultimately about Christ and his experience. And verse 13 is a concluding doxology to mark the end of book one. And so David declares his, will declare his confidence in the first three verses of Psalm 41. And we can say that by faith, David knew that God would deliver him and that God would rescue him. And so we open Psalm 41 now with seven important points to consider in the opening beatitude of verse 1 of this Psalm 41. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. We can read this psalm in two ways. And these two ways are related to each other. On the one hand, this beatitude can refer to God himself. God himself considers the poor, and he is eternally blessed. Psalm 68, 5-6 says, Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home, and he leads out the prisoners to prosperity. And so one way of reading this is to praise, as to give praise to God. Blessed are you, O Lord, the one who considers the poor. And since David is weak and needy, he praises God and he appeals to the character of God. On the other hand, this is a promise that God will bless uh, people who care for the weak and the poor. And in that case, the reason God will bless David in this psalm is because he's taken care of the needy in his kingdom and the two ways of reading this beatitude are in fact related to each other because they show this point god himself cares for the poor and he blesses those who have a compassionate heart by the grace of god through faith in his name and so the word poor in verse 41 or verse psalm 41 1 can be translated weak powerless or even insignificant depending on the context in fact these are possible translations are not far from each other. Those who are poor are usually weak and marginalized. Often they are sick because they have not money for nutritious food or warm clothes. Money brings power and influence. Poverty closes doors for opportunity. It's easy to overlook the poor today. The blessed man not only sees a poor man, a poor woman, or a poor family, but he also takes time to consider them, to regard them, to, to minister to them. And the word consider means more than a compassionate concern. The word means careful thought and reflection in order to know and to do the right thing for the poor. Those who consider the poor do not just have warm, cuddly feelings they give the poor their due time and their due attention to discover what could genuinely be helpful to them, what genuinely could serve them. Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, says, They do not toss them a penny and go on their way, but inquire into their sorrows, sift out their causes, study the best ways for their relief, and practically come to their rescue, such as these have the mark of divine flavor plainly upon them and are as surely the sheep of the Lord's pasture as if they wore a brand on their foreheads. You see, God himself considered the poor when Christ came into the world. And, and we were weak and we were helpless. We were insignificant, but God stooped down to us in Christ. He didn't help us from a distance, but he sent his son Jesus to become one of us a vulnerable human being to die in our place. Romans 5, 6, and 8 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. See, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that his poverty we might become rich. You see, when God's people focus their attention on insignificant people at the fringes of society, we are imitating our Father in heaven. And so David continues in this psalm, He's going to describe how God blesses those who show active, thoughtful compassion. The man or the woman who cares for the poor can expect that God will care for them. 
Psalm 41, 1 through 3 says, In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. And now you might think that the people who care for the weak and protect the helpless would not have enemies, but that's not the case. In January 1991, Christian author Randy Alcorn and several dozen others went uh, on trial for peacefully protesting outside of an abortion clinic, the Lovejoy Surgic Center near Portland, Oregon. And it's hard to imagine a more inappropriate name for a facility that kills babies. Judge James Ellis was clearly hostile to the pro-life defendants. At various times, he exploded with red-faced anger at defense witnesses or read his mail while they testified. And Alcorn explains what happened next. The time came for Judge Ellis, who had been so overtly hostile towards us during the trial, to give his final instructions to the jury before sending them away for deliberation. And his final words were this, You must find these people guilty, and you must punish them sufficiently to ensure they'll never do this again. For our total, peaceful, nonviolent actions, Alcorn says, the jury awarded the abortion clinic $8.2 million. And yet Alcorn's conscience could not allow his wages to be garnished to pay an abortion clinic, and so he resigned from the church. This was the way God moved him to start a separate ministry and become an author who has blessed so many Christians today. To avoid having his royalties garnished, the money from his books goes to the ministry to fund missions. God did not give Randy Alcorn up to the will of his enemies. Instead, what others meant for evil, God meant for good, as Genesis 50:20 says. And this was our Lord's experience also. He came to earth to do nothing but good. He healed the sick, he cared for the poor, and yet his enemies hated him and they wanted to kill him. They thought they had defeated him by putting him to death on the cross, and yet God had other plans. God did not give up Jesus to the will of his enemies, but raised him up on the third day in power and in glory. Now after these words of faith and confidence david turns to god in psalm 41 4 through 10 david is going to appeal for grace so that his enemies will not get the upper hand and so he starts by confessing his sin and asking god to heal him psalm 41 4 says as for me O lord it says as for me i said O lord be gracious to me heal me for i have sinned against you and so we don't know when david was deathly ill we don't have a verse that tells us this, but whenever this was during David's life, he clearly saw a connection between his sin and sickness. And since the invention of the microscope, we generally accept the, the germ theory of disease. As scientifically minded Westerners, we often discount the idea that disease or illness can have a spiritual cause. And to be clear here, we, not all sickness is a result of personal sin. But scripture indicates that some sickness is the result of personal sin. And here's, here's what the Apostle Paul said. He wrote to believers in Corinth about the way they were dishonoring the Lord's table. In 1 Corinthians 11, 28-30, it says, Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body and eats and drinks judgment on himself. And that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have even died. And evidently, quite a few of the Christians in Corinth were sick because of their sin. They thought they honored the Lord by taking communion, but they dishonored the body of Christ by the way they treated each other. God judged them with sickness, and some even died. And now consider the words of James as he tells us to pray for the sick. And James 5, 14-16, James says, Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. And therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you might be healed. 
So the sick man here calls the elders and confesses his sins to them. And then the elders pray for forgiveness and help for the man. And once again, we need to say clearly that not all sickness is the result of sin. Jesus met a man who was blind from birth in John 9, 2-3, which says this. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus said, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in them. This is a case where our Lord himself says that a disease or disability was not caused by sin. God had other purposes in mind that man's sickness was not caused by personal sin. And having said this, we do need to realize that some sickness is the result of personal sin. If you come down with a serious illness, the Holy Spirit might be highlighting in your life a specific sin in your life. Maybe it is a long-term sin that you're not willing to confess or give up. Maybe it is a grave sin that's bringing hurt on others or shame to the body of Christ. Don't let yourself worry that every cold you catch this winter is because of sin in your life or even in this spring or in any other time in your life. That is going overboard. If God is disciplining you with sickness, he's doing it out of love, as Hebrews 12 tells us. And he will make that plain to you because his whole purpose is to help you to turn from sin and turn towards him to conform you into the image of Christ, as Romans 8.28 says. And so if the Holy Spirit does prompt you through the word, David's words are an appropriate prayer for you to make your own. In Psalm 41, verse 4, which says, O Lord, be gracious to me, heal me, for I have sinned against you. And notice here how the gospel is at the heart of what David says. David does not say, heal me because I've been good. You might think this would have been a, a good time for, for David to be reminded, uh, uh, to remind God of all the good that he has done for the poor and for the needy. Well, like this, heal me because I've considered the poor. And that is how religious people come to God. They realize, religious people realize they need God's help and forgiveness and grace. And so they come to him with the things that they have done. They come with a resume of their spiritual accomplishments, how much they give, how many hours they've served, the times they turned the other cheek, the mission trip they went on, the tracks that they gave to somebody at work and on and on. David doesn't do that. He doesn't appeal to his accomplishments and anything of the like. He says, heal me because I'm so bad. That is the only way that we can come to God. As Charles Spurgeon once said, I have a great need of Christ and a great Christ for my need. That is exactly the heartbeat of God. And how can God forgive us when we come to him with our sin? As David wrote these words, he was not only speaking for himself, he was also speaking for Christ. Jesus was perfectly sinless, and yet he is joined to us as his people, and he took our sin as his own. And he was perfectly innocent, but he carried our sin, so he could say to God the Father, I have sinned against you. The spotless Son of God became sin for us so that we could be forgiven, as 2 Corinthians 5.21 says. You see, you bring nothing to God but your sin. And you can only be forgiven because Jesus carried your sin. God considers the poor. Romans 5.6 says, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That, my friend, is good news. That means the only reason that you can come to God is because God has come to first to us. That is the very reason for the incarnation where God came and he came on a rescue mission. He was born under the sentence of death to pay the penalty for your and my sins in our place and for our sin, and to be buried, and to rise again. And this Lord, this King, is he is soon returning to judge the living and the dead. 
And which side are you on today? Are you on the side of being an enemy of God, an enemy of the cross, an enemy of the resurrection? Or are you a friend of God? And the only reason that you can be a friend of God is because God first loved you. It's not because you first loved God. Jonah 2.9 says that salvation is of the Lord. That means that from beginning to end and everywhere in between, salvation is totally 100% a work of God. God is at the work at the beginning. He is drawing sinners to himself to save them irresistibly and to draw them through the preaching of the word of God by the Spirit to saving faith. God is even at work among his people who are called by his name. He uh, draws them to repentance because repentance is not just the entrance into heaven. It's not just the entrance into salvation. Repentance, as Calvin and Luther said, it's, it's the beginning, it's the middle, it's the end of the Christian life. It's ongoing throughout our whole life on this side of eternity the christian life is all about repentance first john 1 9 says if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness and you need to the more that you grow in the grace and the knowledge of christ the more clearly you're going to be able to see your sin and hate your sin, and turn away from your sin towards Christ, the one who alone is sufficient for you. This is why we have an advocate. 1 John 2, 1-2 tells us, this is why we have um, the mediator of the new covenant, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, or not in 1 Corinthians, in 1 Timothy 1, 15. We have a mediator. The book of Hebrews tells us that we have an intercessor before the Father. This is good news. Christ is sufficient in every way. And what that means is it's it's not about our performance. It's not about what we do. It's not about how much credit we've racked up because of all of our good deeds. All of our deeds, Isaiah says, are as filthy rags before God. And what we desperately, even especially as Christians... We, we can get into this mindset that we just need to do more for God. We need to do more and more and more for God. And what you need to understand is that even though we are in Christ, and Paul says in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. It's not you who holds you fast. It's not you that can do all things through. It's not all about you that... So you can do all things through Christ. It's the verses in Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ. You strengthens me. It's not about you. It's about Christ. It's about Christ being conformed. You being conformed into the image of Christ who is holding you fast. Who by the Spirit is taking the word of Christ in the pages of Scripture. And he's helping you to grow to be more like Christ. By the way, Peter says in 2 Peter 3.18, he commands us to grow as Christians in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So, yes, it is Christ who holds us fast. Absolutely, 100%. But we must grow. We must attend to our growth in reading the word and studying the word and meditating on the word and memorizing it and taking it in. We must attend to the hearing and the preaching of the word of God as it's preached to us every Lord's Day. We must attend to when we hear podcasts and and as we read books, we must attend to the fact of, of uh, is what being taught to me, whether I'm reading a book or whether I'm hearing a sermon, is, is it honoring to Christ? Because 1, Corinthians, or 1 Thessalonians 5.21 tells us to test all things and to hold fast to what is good. And on and on we can go with this, but you see, this is why we need the Word. We need the Word to grow strong, and we need the Word to help us to grow up 
into Christ so that we can do as Colossians 3 tells us to put off the old man and put on the new man. That is that we have been united to Christ by faith in his name. We are his and he is ours. And this is good news. It's not about us. Christ is at work in us to strengthen us by his grace. And now David was going back to Psalm 41. David was desperate as he prayed because his enemies were cruel. They did not consider the weak and the poor. And instead, David's sickness and trouble were a golden opportunity. Imagine being in the hospital and the people who bring you flowers and balloons are secretly hoping you kick the bucket and that you die. You can hear them whispering in the hallway and trying to get more details at the nurse's station. This is how it was for David. Psalm 41, 5 through 10 says, My enemies say of me in malice, when will, we, when will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say, a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I've trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay him, David says. This betrayal was ultimately fulfilled by Judas against Jesus. In fact, Jesus quotes Psalm 41.9 at the Last Supper after he humbled himself by washing the disciples' feet in John 13.18. In fact, just minutes later, Judas went out into the night to betray him. Have you been betrayed by people? Have you been hurt by others? You know what? We can say our Lord knows. He was betrayed by one of his innermost disciples, one of the twelve. The ones who were supposed to follow him all the way to the end. And they were the ones that were taught personally by him. The ones that were supposed to carry out the message of the gospel to the, the nations. Jesus understands the pain of betrayal. He understands the pain of, of the hurt of other people. This is why we can take our hurt to Christ, our King. Hebrews 2 17 through 18 in Hebrews 4 14 through 16 very clearly tell us that that Jesus was tempted in every respect and yet he never sinned and this is why Hebrews 4 16 invites us even summons us to come before the throne of God's grace in prayer to receive help in time of need and so maybe that's what you need today Maybe you've been hurt by another person. Maybe you've been hurt by another pastor. Maybe you've been hurt by other people. And maybe you think, oh, I'm just going to give up on the church because you know what? The church, is <coughs> the church is full of hypocrites. And so why would I care? Maybe you've been hurt by somebody engaging in street ministry and they accosted you and they threw the Bible at your face and they might have told you the truth, but they did not tell you the truth in love. And you know what? It hurts and you want to give up on the church. But understand this, that Christ bled and died for the church. Ephesians 5 tells us that he has presented the church. He's going to present the church blameless. The church is blameless in his sight. If you are in Christ, you belong to him and he belongs to you. You have an obligation to love the very thing that Christ came and that Christ bled for and that Christ rose for. The church is not option B and C in the mind of God. The church is plan A and B and C in this world. And this is so important because too many Christians, they just give up. They give up on the church if they have been betrayed and hurt by the church. Do not give up on the church. The church in the mind of God is absolutely essential. It's absolutely critical. And that's what's so egregious about what's happened in the last couple years with the COVID lockdowns and seeing churches shut down because the church is not just another institution. It is God's ordained instrument 
God's ordained institution in the world to see the lost saved and disciples made through the preaching of the very word of God. And so this is absolutely vital. And the church has done good. Has the church been perfect? No, the, the church, as Luther told us, was we are at the same time sinners and saints and sinners. We are ongoing works of God's grace. That's why we need to continue to repent of our sin. That's why we need to continue to grow in godliness. That's why we're not to sit on our, on our hands and, and just twiddle our thumbs on the couch. We are to grow and to utilize the means of God's grace. This is why I need you and you need me. We need to speak the truth and love to one another. We need to help one another to grow. If we see our brother erring, if we see our brother struggling, if we see a sister struggling, we are to go to them in love and to have that conversation. Not to avoid the conversation. That's not love. Avoidance, when you see a brother or a sister in error, when you see them walking down a dangerous path, you're not loving them if you continue to, to see them walk down that path and you don't warn them. It's because of the love of God. By the way, Jude 3 tells us that we're to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Every time that we're told to speak out, every time that we're told to witness, Almost always in the New Testament, there's this idea of the fruits of the Spirit. And the fruits of the Spirit, the love, the joy, the peace, the kindness, the goodness, and self-control, and on and on that Paul describes in Galatians 5, through 23. These are things that the Spirit is producing in our lives in increasing measure. You know what? If, if you're honest, you know which ones you struggle with. You know what? There's There's been a continual growth in my life, I'll be honest with you, especially with patience. Patience with others. And I and I constantly have to remember and, and remind myself in, in certain situations when I get a, a little flustered or upset with somebody or it seems to be, in my mind, I'm getting, you know, mistreated or, or talked down to. I have to remember to, to, to pause and to remember to see this person, to see this situation through the eyes of Jesus as described in the Bible. And what this does is it gets me to pray more about the situation. And what God wants to do in those situations is he wants to bring the truth of Scripture to bear more and more in our lives so that we will more and more become like Jesus. And so the pain that you're, you've experienced, the betrayal and the hurt that you've experienced, God is using that in your life. The only question is whether you're going to become bitter because of it or whether you're going to turn to Christ and to trust him more and to lean more on the sufficiency of Christ and grow up because of that experience, more into Christ, and to use that as a vehicle, a tool, to share Christ with those who are hurting and those who are struggling. You see, the situations and the circumstances of our lives, as one of my mentors now with the Lord says, the Lord hand-tailors the situations of our lives because behind them is a providential God. You see, God is, God is at work in our lives uh, the circumstances of the situations of our lives in all of history, world history, our personal history, are, are moving towards the end. An end. Our lives will end. They have an expiration date. Psalm 90 tells us that we're to number our days. That means that, that God knows the length of our days. Jesus says that he knows the very hairs on our heads. And God knows the motivation of our hearts. In fact, Scripture tells us that He knows the thoughts that we think before we even think them. God knows us. <coughs> he knows the length of our days. He knows the thoughts that we think. He knows the motivation of our hearts. He knows us. He sees us. We cannot fool an all-seeing and all-knowing God. And that's why we can take our, our pain because 
The Lord sees our pain. He knows our pain. And he loves us enough to give us the truth. The question is, in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your hurt, will you turn as a poor, desperate beggar, as Luther said, to Christ? In the midst of your pain, Christian, or will you turn away from the very thing that God has designed for your good? And if you turn away, do you really believe and do you really treasure Christ? You must ask yourself this. Because there are too many Christians today who, who have just walked away from the church because they have been hurt by the church. I can tell you, this would have been too easy for me. I have been hurt by the church again and again and again and again and again and again. I have to go to Christ, my sinless Savior, my substitute who paid the penalty in my place and for my sin. The one who has credited my account with his perfect spotless righteousness. It's not about me and it's not about you. We are poor and we are in need of the righteousness of Christ that he alone can provide. And the more that we posture our hearts and our minds in this way to Christ, the more that we will grow in humility, the more that we will grow to, to show love and honor and give great glory to Christ, and the more that he will use us because he uses weak and, and uh, vessels, we, and we are weak. He uses, the Lord uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And what we need to understand, we need to understand this. Because too many Christians are walking in their own power. Too many of us are walking in our own sufficiency. We use Philippians 4.13 as a badge of, of, of honor. We, can, we say, I can do all things. And we forget the last part of that. It's who strengthens us. We make it all about me. So I'll just do this. I'll, I'll do this ministry. I'll go on this mission trip. I'll sign this thing. I'll do this thing all in my own power because I have the knowledge. I have the ability. I have the talent. I, but who's the one who gave us the education? Who's the one who gave us the ability to pay for it? Who's the one that gave us the brain to function so that we could know the knowledge, have the knowledge and the ability and the skill to do the very things that we do every day. You know, it, uh, this, this is also another point that, that Paul brings to bear in this conversation. In 1 Thessalonians 5, he also commands us, and he, Paul says, this is the will of God for you, which, by the way, when, when God says, this is my will, you, people today wonder, Many Christians wonder, what is the will of God for me? And Paul says, one of the things in 1 Thessalonians 5 that he says explicitly about the will of God is thankfulness. Thankfulness is part of the will of God for you as revealed in the word. Do you thank the Lord that, that you, before you get in your car and you drive wherever you're going to go every day? Do you thank the Lord when you go into the grocery store to buy the groceries that you have? Do you thank the Lord as you click and you clock on to work for the job that he gave you to provide the money so that you could pay for your house and your shelter and the food and the, on, and the gas and the car and, the, and to help provide for your children? And oh, It gets a little uh, convicting pretty fast for all of us, myself included. And by the way, I, I am not good at this. I, I, I would say I'm growing in this. To, to reminding myself, as I get in that car, that car could swerve at any time. It could malfunction at any time. That car is held fast by God. At any time. In fact, when, when I came back from, my wife and I came back from, from Oregon, or from Idaho, excuse me, one time. It was snowy. It was icy. I had forgotten to check the tires on my car. All four of my tires were bald. Uh, by, by any stretch of the imagination, uh, at this time, 
as we were coming down Highway 58, down out of the Willamette Valley, and we were coming into Eugene, just about 10 minutes from Eugene, outside of Eugene, Springfield, Oregon. We uh, did a, we, my wife first did a, a three, almost a th in 360. We were facing, we almost went off the, the, the cliff, which, which actually was in driving that area again was we would have headed into a tree, would have hit a tree dead on. But, but by God's grace, we spun around and we were facing a truck, a semi. I called my wife down. She drove up to another area, just not far from there. We turned around and I got, I said, just, I'm going to take over driving. And I drove down there and we had to do it again because again, we spun out. And we, we again paused and we prayed and we asked the Lord for help. And the, the next time I was going slow. I was going about 20 miles an hour in a 55 all the way down. We were crawling down. And finally we got to uh, I-5 safely. And even there it was, it was already pretty bad. But by God's grace, by God's kindness, we were able to get home. He spared our lives. See, the Lord is doing this in our lives every day. And do we give thanks? Do we even give thanks? Do we even pause to pray, to ask for his help in driving and working in a thousand different things in our lives? It's not just the hurt. It's not just the pain. It's all of life that God is concerned with. And so it's wonderfully fitting here now as we wrap up our time together that Psalm 41 in book 1 of the Psalms ends on a strong note of faith. God heard his prayer and saved David. David ends with deep joy and assurance. Psalm 41, 11 through 12 says, By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me, but you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence. Many saw this sickness as a sign that God was against David. And yet David knew that God was pleased with him. In the same way, God the Father was pleased with Christ. And even as he suffered on the cross, surrounded by his enemies, God proved that he was pleased and delighted with Jesus by raising him from the dead. And although Christ took our sins as his own, God upheld him because of his perfect integrity. After he suffered, Christ was seated at God's right hand forever. Now, book one of the Psalms is the story of Christ and David's life and words and centuries before Jesus was born. Christ is the ideal man of Psalm 1 and the king of Psalm 2. He was hated and attacked by his enemies. He identified with us and took our sin as his own. He called on God to save him because of his blameless life and God heard him. How fitting to end book one of the Psalms with the doxology. In fact, all five books of the Psalms end with the doxology that is similar to verse 13. Psalm 41, 13 says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, amen and amen. So when we read the Psalms, this is the to be the natural response of our hearts. Our God is a God who saves. He considers the poor. He considers you and me. He is working all things for his good and for the good of those who call on his name. That should lead us to worship and to extol and to honor and to glorify the name of God forever and ever. He who is from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we, we just pause even now as we end our time and we echo the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 that we are so thankful for Christ because without you we are poor sinners who are bound to hell a place of unending unrelenting conscious punishment and yet as you said in Romans 5 at just the right time you sent forth Christ our 
king to pay the penalty for us in our place and for our sin. You were born under the sentence of death to pay the penalty for us so that we might be forgiven and that we might know of the excellencies and the glory of the Lord Jesus. And so, Lord, we are reminded that even because you have saved us from our trespasses, from our sins, you have reconciled us to God. We should care for the poor. We should care for the poor. Because we were once ultimately poor. We were once bound for hell. And so, Lord, help us. We who have been reconciled to God. We who have been justified by faith in Christ. May we carry forth as 2 Corinthians 5 tells us to do. May we call men and women everywhere to be reconciled to God, to the only God who alone can save, to the only God, you, who, who through by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, can save us, can rescue us. You who are a rock, you are a shield, you are our king. You are the only one who can help us. And it's only by your grace, only by the, the, the merits of Christ that we can be forgiven. That we can have access to the throne of grace and to find, as Hebrews 4.16, help in time of need. Help for our hurt, help for our pain, help for our struggles, help for our trials, help for our temptations, help for our parenting, help for our marriages, help for our relationships, help with the hurt and the pain of life. Help the help that you alone provide. And so, Lord, we are so thankful for the help that you alone can give and the only proper response of our hearts to this is to bless your name, to honor you, and to glorify you with all of our lives. Because as the Heidelberg Catechism says, there is only one comfort in life and death, and that is all in you, as described in and by your word. And so we are thankful, Lord. Thank you for this time that you've given to us to open your word. Thank you for sending forth Christ the the king to pay the penalty for us in our place and for our sin and to be buried and to rise again. Thank you that you are even soon returning in the, in the Father's good time and in the Father's call and plan. And so, Lord, help us, your people, to eagerly, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, to eagerly look forward to that day. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.